Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hey, I'm Libby, and I'll be reading you today's Cape Cod Times, dated Friday, July 21st, 2023. Today's weather forecast calls for continued humidity. It will be cloudy with a thunderstorm tonight, highs in the mid-70s. Tonight, temperatures will dip down to the low 70s. The weekend, however, looks beautiful, with highs in the low 80s, partly sunny, humid, and warm. By special request from a few of our faithful listeners, we now present the lottery numbers. Thursday's numbers game midday drawing numbers were 7, 2, 1, and 2. The evening drawing numbers were 4, 2, 8, and 8. For the mass cash drawing on Thursday, we have numbers 6, 7, 9, 11, and 21. Wednesday's billion-dollar Powerball drawing numbers were 7, 10, 11, 13, 24, and a Powerball of 24. And finally, for Tuesday's Mega Millions drawing, we have numbers 19, 22, 31, 37, 54, and the extra ball of 18. In Cape Cod News today, our first story is headlined, Pico's Taco Shock Shack Opens in Brewster by Zane Razek of the Cape Cod Times. A new Mexican restaurant opened on July 11th in Brewster in the location that formerly housed Guapo's Tortilla Shack. Pico's Taco Shack at 239 Underpass Road serves different types of tacos, including Baja fish, chicken, birria al pastor, ribeye, and a vegetarian option. There are also larger meals, such as the Cape Cod Fish and Chip Burrito. We're just here to try to serve the community of Brewster, give everyone good food, and just expand from there. Support the community. We're here for anything you'd like us to do. Help our neighbors, whatever the case may be. Owner and manager Bernardo Macedo said during a July 10th Brewster Select Board meeting. The board granted the establishment the common victualler license required to open. A representative from the restaurant could not be reached for comment. Its hours of operation will be 11 a.m. to 8 p.m., except for Fridays and Saturdays, when it will stay open until 9. According to a lease that runs from July 1st to June 30th, 2025, the property is owned by Miami Stuff, LLC, in South Harwich. Over the course of the lease, Pico's Taco Shack will pay $96,000 in rent. During the meeting, Macedo said the restaurant will not have indoor seating. All I'm trying to do is just take out. Quick, easy, come in, grab your food. We'll provide seats outside, and you're more than welcome to do whatever you'd like to do. Either stay or go, said Macedo. Cape Cod Pride Festival honors Glass and Evans by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. The Cape Cod Pride Festival, hosted by Cape Cod Pride Incorporated with Y101FM, Fenway Health and We Thrive is set to take over the Village Green Saturday in Hyannis. This year, the festival will honor Stonewall Uprising survivors and husbands Charles Evan and Paul Glass with an award for their work and commitment to the LGBTQ plus community on the Cape. Evans is also one of the founding members of Cape Cod Pride. They were very surprised when I told them they'd been nominated, said Pam Washburn, president of Cape Cod Pride. 
They are Cape Cod, and they need to be recognized for their work here within our own community, not just recognized for Boston and New York. The pair, now Falmouth retirees, have always been prominent figures in the LGBTQ plus community on the Cape and beyond. Evans helped found Cape Cod Pride, serving as clerk and vice president on the board of directors. He and Glass were also founding members of LGBTQ plus Elders of Color, a Boston-based organization working to bring attention to older LGBTQ plus people of color, and work with numerous organizations on the Cape. Glass currently serves as the organization's president. Paul and Charles have had such a tremendous legacy, both in their work in Boston and now and being real leaders here on Cape Cod, said Senator Julian Sear, Democrat from Truro. I think they truly exemplify the best of our community, and I think it's particularly crucial that we lift up and celebrate LGBTQ people of color whose stories often haven't been told. The festival starts at 11 a.m. and ends at 3 p.m. Saturday. The celebration will be kicked off by Provincetown town crier Danielle Gomez-Lata. Lady Di, host of the Your Legs Up talk show, will be the mistress of ceremonies. I'm looking for a nice day, a nice celebration of pride, said Washburn. It's important just seeing the fruition of all our hard work and seeing people in the community and the allies having a great time. Speakers for this year's festival include Evans, Sear, U.S. Representative William Keating, a Democrat from Massachusetts, and Scott Fitzmorris, Executive Director of We Thrive. Being proud and being visible is quite literally life-saving work, Sears said. Unfortunately, we need to remember that in this most sad-to-see moment that we're seeing cruel politics that has unfortunately gripped certain parts of the country. What's the live entertainment for Cape Cod Pride? Familiar faces such as Zoe Lewis and Out Late with Diana will provide live entertainment along with Cape Cod rock band Club Nine Ball. DJ Jimmy D will also be there, pumping out tunes for the whole day. There will also be a kid's tent running throughout the day, and the first 35 kids to arrive will receive a Cape Cod Pride swag bag. Over 70 vendors and nonprofits will be taking over the green. Food trucks will be providing food throughout the day, and a raffle donated by Cape and Leisure will be auctioned off as well. As for the decision to hold the festival in July, Washburn said she wanted to ensure everyone could go to all the celebrations they wanted to during Pride Month in June. Everybody wants to go to every other Pride because there are so many of them, said Washburn. And really, why can't you have Pride every day? Kennedy Compound is at the center of Kate Story's new telling of tale by Andrew DeMillo, special to the Cape Cod Times. White House by the Sea, A Century of the Kennedys at Hyannisport by Kate Story, published by Scribner. The history of the Kennedy family is so well chronicled from the modern Camelot legends surrounding John F. Kennedy's presidency to the series of tragedies that marked the family throughout the 20th century, that it's hard to imagine new ways to tell their story. But Kate's story does just that in White House by the Sea, A Century of the Kennedys at Hyannisport, revisiting the family's history through their time at the famed Kennedy compound on Cape Cod. Story, the senior features editor at Rolling Stone magazine, weaves a fascinating narrative about the Kennedy family using Hyannisport as the backdrop, 
The book traces the family's ties to the compound back to the 1920s, when Joseph Kennedy bought Malcolm Cottage, what became known as the Big House. Many of the stories feel so familiar, from Joseph Kennedy Jr.'s death during World War II to John F. Kennedy Jr.'s fatal plane crash in 1999. The compound was also the setting for much happier occasions, including John F. Kennedy's presidential acceptance speech and the wedding of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Maria Shriver. Story gives them a fresh look with new details and well-sourced reporting that opens up traditionally private community, what's left of Camelot, she writes. Story's research gives the book a more intimate feel than many other histories of the Kennedy family, introducing figures that aren't as well-known but played a key role in the family and its compound. Fittingly, it's written in an accessible way that makes the book a welcome beach read. Scorching heat and floods sock the U.S. Tornado damages Pfizer plant in North Carolina by Ben Finley and Hannah Schoenbaum of the Associated Press. Dateline, Raleigh, North Carolina. A tornado heavily damaged a major Pfizer pharmaceutical plant in North Carolina on Wednesday, while torrential rain flooded communities in Kentucky and an area from California to South Florida endured more scorching heat. Pfizer confirmed that the large manufacturing complex was damaged by a twister that touched down shortly after midday near Rocky Mount, but said in an email that it had no reports of serious injuries. A later company statement said all employees were safely evacuated and accounted for. Parts of roofs were ripped open atop its massive buildings. The Pfizer plant stores large quantities of medicine that were tossed about, said Nash County Sheriff Keith Stone. I've got reports of 50,000 pallets of medicine that are strewn across the facility and damaged through the rain and the wind, Stone said. The plant produces anesthesia and other drugs, as well as nearly 25% of all sterile injectable medications used in U.S. hospitals, Pfizer said on its website. Aaron Fox, senior pharmacy director at University of Utah Health, said the damage will likely lead to long-term shortages while Pfizer works to either move production to other sites or rebuilds. The National Weather Service said in a tweet that the damage was consistent with an EF3 tornado with wind speeds up to 150 miles per hour. The Edgecombe County Sheriff's Office, where part of Rocky Mount is located, said on Facebook that they had reports of three people injured in the tornado and that two of them had life-threatening injuries. A preliminary report from neighboring Nash County said 13 people were injured and 89 structures were damaged, WRAL-TV reported. Three homes owned by Brian Varnell and his family members in the nearby Dorches area were damaged. He told the news outlet he is thankful they are all alive. His sister and her children hid in their home's laundry room. They got where they needed to be within the house, and it all worked out for the best, Varnell said, near a home that was missing exterior walls and a large chunk of the roof. Elsewhere in the U.S., an onslaught of searing temperatures and rising floodwaters continued, with Phoenix breaking an all-time temperature record and rescuers pulling people from rain-swamped homes and vehicles in Kentucky. Forecasters said little relief appears in sight from the heat and storms. For example, Miami has endured a heat index of 100 degrees Fahrenheit or more for weeks, with temperatures expected to rise this weekend. 
In Kentucky, meteorologists warned of a life-threatening situation in the communities of Mayfield and Wingo, which were inundated by flash flooding this week from thunderstorms. Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear declared a state of emergency there Wednesday as more storms threatened. Forecasters expect up to 10 inches of rain could yet fall on parts of Kentucky, Illinois, and Missouri, near where the Ohio and Mississippi rivers converge. The storm system is forecast to move Thursday and Friday over New England, where the ground remains saturated after recent floods. In Connecticut, a mother and her five-year-old daughter died after being swept down a swollen river Tuesday. In southeastern Pennsylvania, a search continued for two children caught in flash flooding Saturday night. Meanwhile, Phoenix broke an all-time record Wednesday morning for a warm, low temperature of 97 degrees Fahrenheit, raising the threat of heat-related illness for residents unable to cool off adequately overnight. The previous record was 96 degrees in 2003, the Weather Service reported. Lindsay Lamont, who works at the Sweet Republic ice cream shop, Phoenix, said business had been slow during the day with people sheltering inside to escape the heat. But I'm definitely seeing a lot more people come in the evening to get their ice cream when things start cooling off, Lamont said. Heat-related deaths continue to rise in Maricopa County, where Phoenix is located. Public health officials Wednesday reported that six more heat-associated fatalities were confirmed last week, bringing the year's total so far to 18. All six deaths didn't necessarily occur last week, as some may have happened weeks earlier, but were confirmed as heat-related only after a thorough investigation. By this time last year, there had been 29 confirmed heat-associated deaths in the county and another 193 under investigation. Phoenix, a desert city of more than 1.6 million people, had set a separate record Tuesday among U.S. cities by marking 19 straight days of temperatures of 110 degrees or more. It topped 110 again Wednesday. A 71-year-old Los Angeles area man died at a trailhead in Death Valley National Park in eastern California on Tuesday afternoon as temperatures reached 121 degrees or higher and rangers suspect heat was a factor, the National Park Service said in a statement on Wednesday. Senators debate high court ethics bill by Mary Claire Jalinek of the Associated Press, Dateline, Washington. The Senate Judiciary Committee is considering a congressionally imposed ethics code for the Supreme Court, an attempt to respond to recent revelations about justices' interactions with wealthy donors and others. Republicans are strongly opposed, arguing the ethics bill could destroy the high court. The legislation, which the panel is debating on Thursday ahead of an expected vote, would set ethics rules for the court and a process to enforce them, including new standards for transparency around recusals, gifts, and potential conflicts of interest. Democrats first pushed the legislation after reports earlier this year that Justice Clarence Thomas participated in luxury vacations and a real estate deal with a top GOP donor, and after Chief Justice John Roberts declined to testify before the committee about the ethics of the court. Since then, news reports also revealed that Justice Samuel Alito had taken a luxury vacation with a GOP donor, and the Associated Press reported last week that Justice Sonia Sotomayor, aided by her staff, 
has advanced sales of her books through college visits over the past decade. Opening the committee meeting, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin said the legislation would be a crucial first step in restoring confidence in the court. He said that if any of the senators sitting in the room had engaged in similar activities, they would be in violation of ethics rules. The same is not true of the justices across the street, Durbin said. Even though the ethics legislation has little chance of passing the Senate, it would need at least nine GOP votes to pass and Republicans appear united against it. Democrats say the spate of revelations means that enforceable standards on the court are necessary. The legislation comes after years of increasing tension and increasing partisanship on the committee over the judiciary. Then-President Donald Trump nominated three conservative justices to the Supreme Court, all of whom were confirmed when Republicans were in the Senate majority and with considerable opposition from Democrats. The court has, as a result, shifted sharply to the right, overturning the nationwide right to an abortion and other liberal priorities. Republicans charge that the legislation is more about Democratic opposition to the court's decisions than its ethics. It's about harassing and intimidating the Supreme Court, said Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley, a senior GOP member of the panel. South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, the top Republican on the judiciary panel, said Democrats are trying to destroy the court as it exists by tightening the rules around recusals and disqualifying conservatives from some decisions. Congress should stay out of the court's business and mind the separation of powers, Graham said. The bill is an assault on the court itself, Graham said. The legislation would mandate a new Supreme Court code of conduct with a process for adjudicating the policy modeled on lower courts that do have ethics codes. It would require that justices provide more information about potential conflicts of interest, allow impartial panels of judges to review justices' decisions not to recuse, and require public, written explanations about their decisions not to recuse. It would also seek to improve transparency around gifts received by justices and set up a process to investigate and enforce violations around required disclosures. Republicans on the committee offered a series of amendments to the bill, many of which were focused on boosting security for judges after a man was found with a gun, knife, and pepper spray near the home of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh last year. The panel rejected most of the amendments as Democrats said Republicans were trying to distract from the ethics reforms. Durbin pushed back on the notion that the legislation is about politics, noting he had introduced legislation on Supreme Court ethics reforms more than 10 years ago when the court was more liberal. The reforms we're proposing would apply in equal force to all justices, Durbin said. The current push came after news reports revealed Thomas's close relationship with Dallas billionaire and GOP donor Harlan Crow. Crow had purchased three properties belonging to Thomas and his family in a transaction worth more than $100,000 that Thomas never disclosed, according to the nonprofit investigative journalism organization ProPublica. The organization also revealed that Crow gifted Thomas and his wife Ginny with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of annual vacations and trips over several decades. Durbin had invited Roberts to testify at a hearing, but he declined, saying that testimony by a chief justice is exceedingly rare because of the importance of preserving judicial independence. 
Roberts also provided a statement on ethics principles and practices signed by all nine justices that describe the ethical rules they follow about travel, gifts, and outside income. The statement provided by Roberts said that the nine justices reaffirm and restate foundational ethics principles and practices to which they subscribe in carrying out their responsibilities as members of the Supreme Court of the United States. The statement promised at least some small additional disclosure when one or more among them opts not to take part in a case. But the justices have been inconsistent in doing so since. Roberts has acknowledged that the court could do more to adhere to the highest standards of ethical conduct, but he didn't elaborate and has not followed up publicly on that idea. Besides Sotomayor's push for book sales, the AP reported that universities have used trips by justices as a lure for financial contributions by placing them in event rooms with wealthy donors and that justices have taken expenses-paid teaching trips to attractive locations that are light on actual classroom instruction. Growers want to sell pot direct to consumers by Kinga Barandi of the Telegram and Gazette. Picking up produce at the local farm stand may soon look different in Massachusetts if the state's cannabis farmers are granted their request to sell their product directly to consumers, just like farmers can now sell zucchini, tomatoes, or blueberries. It would be a different farm-to-table experience in Massachusetts. Massachusetts legislators are looking only at direct sales of marijuana seeds, but outdoor growers are pushing for more direct sales. When the state talks sustainability, it cannot leave out the farmers, said Matthew Gregg, an outdoor cannabis grower with a farm in the Lynn area, and the program director at Sun Grown Cannabis Alliance, a cooperative of farms and farmers that promote sun and soil-grown product in Massachusetts. Massachusetts, he said, needs to keep cannabis homegrown. Goldie Piff of A.V. Rose Farm in Rochester on the South Coast owns a legacy farm that once grew cranberries and since has diversified with the dip in market prices. However, despite qualifying as a social equity and economic empowerment small business owner, she has not entered the cannabis market. There are so many regulations, so much red tape, said Piff, that she feels she's been shut out of the industry. Speaking remotely to the Joint Committee on Cannabis Policy Tuesday, she urged lawmakers to fight for the farmers of Massachusetts. Farmers deserve the right to grow, manufacture, and serve customers ourselves without a middleman, she said. Despite farms and farmers being included in the state's cannabis laws, many feel forgotten, Piff said. The state makes concessions to other groups, has approved home delivery of product from retail sellers for both medical and recreational marijuana, and is considering curbside pickup at retail establishments. Farmers, she said, should be allowed to sell directly to customers. The push to allow farmers direct-to-consumer sales, technically not filed yet as a bill, was just one of the issues contemplated by the Joint Committee Tuesday at a short hearing interrupted by technical glitches and a false fire alarm that caused the evacuation of the State House for a few minutes. Also on the agenda was a measure that would allow the sale of marijuana seeds in Massachusetts, the product farmers would be able to market directly to consumers, as well as the creation of an oversight mechanism that would ensure the state's Cannabis Control Commission operate according to policy. Seen as a prophylactic measure, Representative Daniel Donahue, a Democrat from Worcester, 
said the measure would ensure that the regulatory body follows state protocols. The oversight duties would fall to the state's inspector general. According to the proposal, the internal audit unit would monitor the quality, efficiency, and integrity of the Cannabis Control Commission as it pertains to host community agreements, investigation and audit policies and procedures, its organizational structure, and management functions. It would also look to prevention, detection, and correction of fraud, waste, and abuse of public money. In 2022, legislators passed an omnibus bill addressing certain issues raised in a report released by the Massachusetts Cannabis Business Association. That report indicated a disconnect between the licensing fees and impact fees charged by communities hosting retail marijuana establishments and the use of those funds, sometimes totaling millions of dollars. Those changes overseen by the joint committee chaired by Donahue was a large-scale reform that addressed issues of equity and created new templates in host community agreements and licensing issues. We made it clear that municipalities cannot take advantage, Donahue said. The new bill Donahue filed would ensure that the business of cannabis be accessible, equitable, and transparent. Will Luzier, the Director of Compliance at Tudister, an organization that eases entry into the cannabis industry, spoke at the hearing in support of allowing the sale of cannabis seeds in Massachusetts. He said the federal government classifies cannabis seeds as hemp and does not prohibit their sale. Cannabis seeds are not considered cannabis, Luzier said, explaining that the seeds themselves do not contain enough active ingredient to be classified as a Schedule I substance under DEA jurisdiction. Hemp comes under the regulation of the Massachusetts Division of Agricultural Resources, Luzier said. Allowing the sale of seeds would enhance the competitiveness of the state's farmers. In questioning Luzier, Donahue asked if there is a market for seeds in the state and was answered with a resounding yes. People buy grow kits all the time, Luzier said, adding that when he purchased seeds through Canada, they arrived concealed in a pen from a California grower. There is a national market and a market in Massachusetts, Luzier said. Labor Crunch Threatens Clean Energy Expansion, Report Says, by Colin A. Young of the Statehouse News Service. Massachusetts' lofty mid-century climate goals hinge upon the state's ability to convince residents and businesses to make the switch from fossil fuels to cleaner electric power. But success will also require tens of thousands of people to take new jobs in the clean energy sector. A new workforce needs assessment released Wednesday from the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center, or MassCEC, found that the state's clean energy workforce will need to grow by an additional 29,700 full-time equivalent workers in order for Massachusetts to meet its target of a 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. And during a time of low unemployment and a declining labor force participation rate, Mass CEC said getting there will actually require 38,100 workers to be trained and ready to work some or all of their time on climate-critical jobs. The transition needed is daunting in scale, Mass CEC CEO Jennifer Delosio said. 
She added, the clean energy industry must grow by nearly 30% by 2030 and 74% by 2050 amid an incredibly tight labor market. And our future clean energy workforce must expand through inclusive practices that recognize that a diverse workforce is a robust and resilient workforce. Like many employers across Massachusetts, clean energy companies are already having trouble hiring new workers. MassCEC said that 88% of sector employers surveyed in 2022 said that they faced challenges in securing talent for clean energy positions. The rapid expansion that needs to occur across all sectors of the clean energy economy will further exacerbate labor shortages and hiring difficulties, the MassCEC report said. Without significant and purposeful intervention, there will simply not be enough interested and qualified job seekers for the number of additional workers needed, and many of the highest growth clean energy positions will also be in high demand by other industries in the economy. We've reached the halfway point of our program today, and regular listeners are aware that at this stage of our broadcast, we move to the obituaries. Our first obituary is for Deacon Paul K. Roma. He fell asleep on their first date watching The Sound of Music. She married him anyway. So begins the long and beautiful love story between Paul Roma and his wife of 53 years, Jean McCarthy Roma. A man of the humanities, Paul studied English, philosophy, and history in college before turning to theology and becoming ordained as a deacon in the Catholic Church. Ultimately, with his love of independence and creative spirit, he transitioned to a career as a carpenter, where he worked either on his own or with his oldest child and only son, Zach, for many years before coming down from the roof one final time, when the flecks of white at his temples could no longer be attributed to paint, to serve as the building commissioner in the town of Barnstable. He was born in Somerville, raised in Melrose, and moved to Cape Cod in the early 1970s, where he lived in a quiet nook in Cotuit in a beautiful house he built for Jean. The Cape afforded him a chance to take the sailboat out of his living room, to toss his kids into the water at Riley's Beach each August, the only time he deemed the water suitably warm for a swim, and to pursue his drive as a teacher in its many forms. Paul served as an English teacher first, before transitioning to carpentry, a skill he passed along to his children, who all worked job sites when they were kids so they could have practical skills as adults, with Zach pursuing it as a career. Paul served as a deacon at St. Elizabeth Seton Catholic Church in Falmouth, and then Our Lady of Assumption Catholic Church in Osterville for decades, where he taught the Catholic faith to newcomers and children, as well as baptized, married, and conducted funerals for numbers of parishioners, family members, and friends over the years since he was ordained. He knew the Bible better than anyone, and it was the same Bible that he used to teach his children, including his daughter Suzanne, who was born with Down syndrome, to read. Paul was a man who excelled at making the impossible happen and spent a lifetime tirelessly advocating for Suzanne, his partner in crime on many adventures, the most dangerous of which was the grocery store. To Suzanne, he was a tireless advocate, dance partner, and endless supplier of cookies. To Zach, Paul taught the art of carpentry, to lead with quiet strength. 
to let children climb on you like monkeys, an endless patience and commitment to Suzanne worthy of sainthood, that the best days are spent going down to the basement to make things, and that sometimes the best tool is a chainsaw. Paul had a unique way of connecting with people, whether he was standing on the altar on Sunday delivering a homily or administering to the sick with humor, compassion, understanding, and love. To his youngest daughters, twins Beth and Amy, Paul passed on a unique ability to connect with people, a gift for public speaking and service, and a commitment for advocating for people in need of a voice. He also passed along to his kids and grandchildren a love of exploring the world, random road trips, the art of trying strange fruit at the grocery store, with the mantra, grab two in case you like it, and a love of Washington, D.C., where Amy and Beth now live with their families, after years of family road trips to the city. For Amy, he taught her to wear her heart on her sleeve and that anything was possible, which led her to help many people through her extensive humanitarian work. And for Beth, he passed down his incredible sense of humor and mischief, which she uses to ensure that no matter what happens in life, we all keep laughing. These are gifts that filled Paul and Jean's home and that their children filled into their loving homes with their spouses and children. Along with his wife, children, grandchildren, and siblings, Paul spent his final days surrounded by love and laughter with games of chess, stories of past adventures and shenanigans, a yard filled with playing kids, a lot of laughter, and a driveway filled with chalk drawings, his favorite form of art. To the love of his life, Jean, she was his rock, his best friend, and she patiently tolerated the barrage of unending projects around the house, Paul emptying his pockets for numerous social causes, long drives for national park stamps, and his love for visiting remote locations like the Arctic Circle. She enjoyed these trips because she loved being around him, just like everyone loved being around him. He was a lot of fun, if not just as a bit stubborn, but his smile lit up a room and he had a bit of a mischievous side, which made everything an adventure. Now he's embarking on a new one, but with the final message to his wife, Jean, until the 12th of never, I'll still be loving you. Visiting hours are 3 to 5 p.m. Monday, July 24th at Chapman Funeral Home on Falmouth Road in Marston's Mills. A funeral mass will be celebrated at 11 a.m. Tuesday, July 25th at Christ the King Church in Mashpee, followed by burial at Mosswood Cemetery in Ketuit. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made in Paul's memory to the Down Syndrome Program Fund at Massachusetts General Hospital. For the online guestbook and directions, please visit the website of Chapman Funeral. David Charles Johnson, Dateline Osterville. David Charles Johnson, age 50, of Osterville. July 21, 1972 to July 13, 2023. David passed away into God's hands suddenly after recovering from surgery at home on Thursday morning, July 13th. David grew up in Hingham, the son of Lorraine and Thomas Johnson, who passed away when David was 13, and his stepfather, Dr. Paul Dugan, M.D. He graduated from Boston College High School in 1990 and Providence College in 1994. 
After college, he followed in his father's footsteps into a career in sales. He most recently sat as the vice president of sales for Sifter, a company that he was honored to be a part of. David loved to travel and experience new cultures through both a historical journey and a culinary approach. Some of his favorite places were Kinsale, Positano, Rome, London, Bermuda, Madrid, and Paris. He met the love of his life, Michelle Weber, on Cape Cod. They were engaged and married on Nantucket, their happy place, and split their time between Boston and the Cape with their adored black lab, Millie. Their life at the Cape meant the world to him. Another very special spot to David was the Johnson's family summer home on the coast of Maine. It was as a husband that David found immeasurable joy and happiness. Beyond the deep and enduring love for Michelle and his family, David will also be remembered by friends for his quick wit, sharp retorts, laughter, loyalty, and strength during his recent illness. His charisma and humor were contagious, and he would constantly be surrounded by old and new friends. Predeceased by his father, Thomas Johnson, David is survived by his loving wife, Michelle Weber Johnson of Osterville, his mother, Lorraine, and stepfather, and many other family members. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made in his name to the Fund for Providence College, Providence College Office of Institutional Advancement on Cunningham Square in Providence, or on the college's website. For the full obituary, please visit the website of Chapman Funeral. Visiting hours will be Sunday, July 23rd from 2 to 5 p.m. at the John Lawrence Chapel and Chapman Funeral Home on Falmouth Road in Marston's Mills. A funeral mass will be celebrated on Monday, July 24th at 11 a.m. at Our Lady of Victory Church on South Main Street in Centerville. To celebrate David's vibrant personality, guests are welcome to wear colorful clothing. Today's Ask Carolyn column is headlined, Their Boyfriends Are Becoming Friends. It's Not Okay With Her. Hi, Carolyn. I've been dating Matt for about six months. My friend Tara has been dating Trevor for about two years. We've all hung out a few times and had a good time. Then Trevor started inviting Matt to go with him to sporting events, and now Matt has invited Trevor to join his weekly kickball game. They're becoming friends independently, which is unexpected and has never happened between someone I was dating and a friend's boyfriend in my dating history. Tara thinks it'll make it even easier for us to do things like double date, but I am feeling suffocated. I liked having a layer of distance between my relationship and my circle of friends. I don't like Trevor much, which I had told Matt, but have stopped mentioning now for obvious reasons. Is it inappropriate for me to take issue with this new friendship? Signed, Suffocated. Dear Suffocated, you can dislike it all you want, but you can't do anything to stop it. Not appropriately. Your reach is limited to the way you spend your own time. So you can choose not to double date with Tara and Trevor, for example. But you don't get any say in how Matt and Trevor spend their time. The issue here seems to be your aversion to Trevor especially because it works on two levels. First, there's the basic time math. Matt plus Trevor equals more Trevor for you, assuming you stay with Matt. Then there's the emotional math. If your friend likes Trevor and your boyfriend likes Trevor, but you don't like Trevor, then is there something wrong with the judgment of these people you otherwise seem to trust? 
Maybe Trevor is a perfectly good person who isn't interesting to you. It's inevitable that our friends will have friends we can do without, and that's as good a reason as any not to let our find things to like muscles atrophy. Forcing yourself to look for what your people see in Trevor sounds like a useful exercise regardless. The idea of separation between your relationship and your friend circle is certainly your prerogative as well. But that, too, was always going to be subject to social currents beyond your control. To your benefit, I believe. Each time you're present for your dates interactions with others, you come away with more information on and potential insight into their character. That's how I suggest you treat Matt's budding friendship with Trevor as more information about both men at least as you wait to see how it all plays out. And even better, take their bond as a source of more information about you. It's just a theory, but if Trevor draws Tara's attention away from you, and if Trevor now also draws Matt's attention away from you, when you prefer your date's attention to you to be protected by a layer of distance, and if this is what constitutes the bulk of your objection to Trevor, and especially if you have a history of not liking your friend's partners or your partner's friends, then it could be your own role here that's due for a harder look. Again, that's just one possible application of the facts you gave. Your Trevor dislike could well be Trevor-specific and justified. My point is that if the further Trevoring of your social life is more than a benign nuisance, then it serves you best to keep an open mind about what those deeper problems might be. Here's today's Best Bets column. Into music, Celtic, jazz, or Star Wars? Nine things to do. This week's Best Bets might just blow you out of the ballpark. Hyannis Harborhawk players are trading in their cleats for a pair of socks to jump around with guests at the Fun Box outside Cape Cod Mall. In a separate celebration, Hyannis is celebrating the LGBTQ plus community with the Cape Cod Pride Festival. Lobster fans can have a heaping helping of lobster at St. Barnabas's Episcopal Church's annual fundraiser in Falmouth. Elsewhere in this week's Cape Week, check for date night ideas, see where you can see Oppenheimer in its original 33mm film format, and stay up to date on the latest in theater life on the peninsula all summer long. Here are nine more things to do on Cape Cod this week. Join the Harbor Hawks at the Fun Box in Hyannis. The Harbor Hawks are trading in the ballpark for a bounce park. The Fun Box will be sponsoring an afternoon of community fun. Harbor Hawks players will be available to meet guests, have fun with kids in the bounce house, play cornhole, and sign autographs from 2 to 4 p.m. on July 27th. Guests will have the chance to take a throw at the Splash Tower. Can you make the target and soak a Harbor Hawks player? Activities with the players are free of charge, but if you want to jump along in the park, you'll have to pay for admission. Adults can join in and jump alongside their children. Test out the Chill Zone, Magic Mountain, Ninja Wall, and much more. The Fun Box is located behind the Cape Cod Mall. Tickets are $34 for a three-hour session, and children under two and adults over 64 are free. Socks must be worn inside the park. The Harbor Hawks have a game scheduled for July 26th. If rain causes cancellation, the game will be rescheduled to July 27th, and this event will be postponed. Lobster Rolls and a Fundraiser 
Enjoy a heaping, succulent lobster roll at Lobster on the Lawn. The annual fundraiser for St. Barnabas' Episcopal Church is for the parish and supports the church's community engagement ministry. For $30, your dinner also includes a dessert, beverage, and chips. Free peanut butter and jelly sandwiches will be available for children with the purchase of a paid meal for children. The event will only be serving Massachusetts lobster. This is to show support for Massachusetts fishermen, who say they continue to protect the nearly extinct right whale population. The purchase of your meal also includes free live entertainment by leading Cape Cod musicians. This event will take place every Monday and feature a different artist. The last day will be August 21st. Food will be served from 4.30 to 6.20 p.m. Live music will run from 5 to 7 p.m. Hear a Celtic music duo in Chatham. Renowned Celtic duo Stanley and Grimm are fiddling back to Cape Cod, the place where they first met. The duo is known for the infectious fun they have on stage. Playing traditional Celtic music by using old and new interpretations of jigs and reels, songs will be played using fiddle, guitar, and voice. This will be a one-night-only performance starting at 6.30 p.m. on July 27th at the Mural Barn of the Atwood Museum on Stage Harbor Road in Chatham. Tickets are available by reservation and are $25 per person. Beer, wine, and other beverages will be available for purchase. Find tickets and more information at the website of the Chatham Historical Society. In Harwich, boots made for working out, not walking. A sought-after fitness personality who keeps celebrities like Gwyneth Paltrow, Kelly Ripa, Naomi Watts, and Lisa Rinna coming back for more is making his way to Cape Cod. Isaac Boots will be debuting his torched class in New England for the first time. Boots was a Broadway dancer who turned into a renowned celebrity fitness trainer and is bringing his workout program to the Cape for an exclusive month-long residency. His classes will start at 8.30 a.m. every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. The last day will be July 29th at the Waquasset Resort and Golf Club in Harwich. Guests staying at the resort will be charged $30, and non-resort guests will be $50. For more information and tickets, go to the website of Waquasset.com. Cape Cod Jazz and Arts Festival in Harwich is completely revamped. Jazz and art lovers, you are in for a free treat. This upgraded festival will have a star-studded lineup of critically acclaimed Broadway stars, cabaret artists, and one of the most beloved entertainers for over 40 years, Tony Danza, who most recently signed up for the TV sequel, and just like that, a spinoff of the popular Sex in the City. Each night will feature a different performer. The night will kick off at 8 p.m. every Tuesday and Thursday through August 30th. Dinner will be available before the show for a charge of $95.25. Children five and under are free. Chef James Hackney is curating summer bites, including citrus post shrimp, lobster baked mac and cheese, and sweets. Dinner starts at 6.30 p.m. For more information, tickets, and show lineup, go to the website of wilquasset.com. Family Week in Provincetown. Last week was Bear Week in Provincetown. Now it's time for Family Week, the largest gathering of LGBTQ plus families. Originating in the mid-90s, the week has become a haven for queer-identified families to develop friendships and enjoy themselves. Last year's Family Week had almost 600 families from 35 states and 9 countries. 
This week will be full of events, thanks to family equality and collage, but tickets are going fast. Collage's events are already sold out. The events will kick off at 10 a.m. July 23rd at the Crown and Anchor Inn on Commercial Street in Provincetown. And for more information, go to the website of ptownfamilyweek.com. Calling all Star Wars fans to Hyannis. Star Wars, A New Hope in Concert will feature two full screenings of the 1977 film. This performance by the Cape Symphony will be shown on Saturday, July 29th at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday, July 30th at 3 p.m. at the Barnstable Performing Arts Center on West Main Street in Hyannis. Oscar-winning composer John Williams will orchestrate the musical score performed live alongside the film. It will be one of the last performances for artistic director and conductor Young Ho Pak, who is leaving at the end of the summer. Pricing is according to the section you select. The most affordable tickets are $32 for adults and $16 for ages 5 to 12. All ticket orders will have an $8 fee. For tickets and more information, go to the website of capesymphony.org. Healthcare workers by day. Eco-Friendly Ice Cream Scoopers by Night by Amber May Rivard of the Cape Cod Times. A family with boats in their blood and a dream that came to mind during the COVID-19 pandemic is out on the water this summer serving up scoops. Sea Scoops, based in West Falmouth, is a family-owned ice cream business that operates on both sea and land by owner Sierra Brown and her mother-in-law Sherry Brown, and it's certainly a family affair. Sierra's 11, Sierra's one-and-a-half-year-old son, James Jimmy Tyler Brown, has been on the boat since he was four months old. He's not only cute as a button, but has the spirit and ice cream bell to prove it. He now says, ice cream, from the boat, rings the ice cream bell, hands out wooden spoons, and loves to say hi to all the doggies and boats. He loves going out on the water and sleeps very well out there. Surprisingly, he's easier to handle on the boat than he is on land, Sierra Brown said of her son. This tight-knit family enjoys spending time on the water and during the COVID-19 pandemic. Sierra had an idea, an ice cream boat. She shared the idea with her mother-in-law, they both work in healthcare, and thought it would be a great way to bring fun into people's lives while spending quality time together. This dream became a reality for the Browns because they wanted it so much. Sierra's father-in-law, James Jeb Brown, has been driving boats since about the age of six, becoming a mechanic at 15. He opened a business as a marine technician in 1990. With him having the boats and the knowledge to make it happen, Sea Scoops was afloat in just two months. We were just very motivated and just kept checking off all the boxes. Sierra says of all the requirements, installations, and licenses they obtained in the short time. Whether you're planning to stop for some ice cream or not, the Sea Scoops boat glides through the harbor with the nostalgia of the ice cream truck music playing, while a Sea Scoops flag and an American flag sway in the wind. On Saturdays, you can catch Sea Scoops on the water of West Falmouth Harbor. Customers without a boat can meet the Browns at the West Falmouth Dock, or the other docks that border the harbor. The Schechter and Lindy Key family members, returning customers, were ecstatic in early July to see the Sea Scoop boat. The Kirk family, too, is spending the whole summer on the boat with their three children and dogs. 
They explained in early July that they don't always get ice cream, but when they do, it's a sweet treat. The family dog, Fiona, can't hold her excitement when she sees the brown, eco-friendly ice cream cup, they said. Fiona knows a pup cup is near. The ice cream is hand-scooped on the boat at $7 per cup and homemade by Whistle Stop Ice Cream Shop, based in Picasset. This year, Sea Scoops got their own ice cream flavor called Sunset Vanilla. It's a big hit among kids. Other flavors are black raspberry, triple chocolate, mint chip, cotton candy, moose tracks, and more. There is also sugar-free vanilla brownie, vegan black raspberry Oreo, vegan dairy, and gluten-soy-free pink lemonade sorbet, pup cups, and drinks. Sea Scoops has shirts and tumblers for sale. Sea Scoops has expanded since its launch in 2021. Jeb built an ice cream trailer with the help of his son, Tyler Brown, for private events, and there's an option for a topping station. They've done at least 10 weddings, including one by boat, with 200 events in total. On Saturdays, they're on the water of West Falmouth Harbor from 11 a.m. until 4 p.m. On Sundays, Sea Scoops serves Bassett's Island in Bourne from 1 to 5 p.m., beginning their trip on the south end of the island and serving boat to boat. The Browns monitor the VHF channels 69 and 72, or you can just wave them down to serve beachgoers. The Browns are committed to leaving the waters cleaner than when they got there. They maneuver their boat next to litter in the ocean, grabbing it up as they pass. We have a dream of our business growing with more boats and hopefully having our own storefront someday, Sierra Brown said of her hopes for the future. For more information and booking, click on the Sea Scoops website. Our favorite Cape restaurants with multiple gluten-free menu items by Gwen Friss of the Cape Cod Times. Although it's been decades since Mac Seafood started offering gluten-free fried fish, I'm still in awe that you can get one of Cape Cod's quintessential summer foods prepared this way. It's a kick to be able to share that information with visitors, such as Broadway star Jessie Mueller, who said she eats a gluten-free diet in town over Memorial Day weekend for a talk and sing show with Seth Rodesky at Provincetown Town Hall. The thing I especially enjoy at Max is that gluten-free is at the core of the fried seafood menu, covering shrimp, scallops, fish, and more, rather than just as an afterthought with a few items thrown in. Max even offers gluten-free soy sauce. Of course, still ask to be sure, but the options are impressive. Locations all nestled under one Max Seafood website include Max Fish House in Provincetown, Max Shack in Wellfleet, Max on the Pier in Wellfleet, Max Chatham Fish and Lobster, and Max Market and Kitchen in Eastham. While most Cape restaurants offer some gluten-free choices these days, I thought I would share a few places I've tried and liked, or that were recommended to me. Fair and Just Kitchen on Main Street in Brewster. Fair and Just Kitchen is a little unusual in that it is a dedicated gluten-free and peanut-free takeout place but you have to be an early bird to get the quinoa. Fair and Just is open Thursdays through Saturdays, starting at noon until the food runs out. Sunday openings are optional, so call first. The menu features a soup that changes weekly, like three bean kale with white sweet potatoes the week we visited, two salads, and eight entrees made using vegetables and plant-based proteins, including tofu. 
One of the entrees is lentil meatless ball carbonara with a creamy carbonara that contains no dairy, but comes with lentil-based balls and is served over organic lentil rice pasta cooked al dente. Chef and owner Peter Duff decided to open a plant-based vegan takeout after his wife Cara got him interested in the plight of farm animals. Now, the couple says, the only animal in the place is the bunny on the sign. Although the address is on Main Street, the restaurant is tucked behind Brewster Ace Hardware and is to the left when looking at Snowy Owl Coffee Roasters. Devour Artisan Eatistry on Main Street in Falmouth. Because owners Hollis and Anya Hirschfield both have issues with gluten, everything in Devour, except the bread, is gluten-free. People have come to tears after hearing that, Hollis said in an interview last year with the Cape Cod Times. Even our fried chicken is gluten-free. The breakfast and lunch shop offers dishes that are composed as if they were five-star dining, say the Hirschfields, balanced with no room for the commonplace. Devour doesn't serve clam chowder because everyone else on Cape Cod does. Instead, they make a bone broth with chicken bones and feet, as well as coconut milk, that is delicious and may hold healing powers. Wicked Restaurant and Wine Bar on South Street at Mashpee Commons. Wicked's menu has some mouth-watering pizza combinations marked gluten-free, including a scallop BLT and a short rib Fiorentino. And here's even more exciting news. We've been told that Crave by Wicked, the takeout-only stop next to their main restaurant, is selling gluten-free pizza by the slice. It's next on my list of places to visit. And finally for today, dream date on the Cape. Here's where to go and what to do. Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. Date night. For some, it's an excuse to spend a night away from the couch. Get out on the town and have a few hours to fall in love all over again. For others, date night is a chance encounter turned into a sit-down dinner or the decision to take the talking off the app and into the real world. Regardless of whether your date night is your first, 21st, or 201st, there's a place on Cape Cod perfect for a special night out. For those who are day daters, fear not. The Cape has a variety of daytime activities to enjoy with a lover. From scenic day hikes showing off the Cape's romantic landscapes to a variety of museums displaying the Cape's best art and flora and fauna. So the article has five recommendations for things to do with a date on the Cape. And they are visit a museum, go see a show, go for a picnic on the beach, go see a movie under the stars, and take a train ride and see the sights. And that's all we have time for today. This is your reader Libby saying thank you for listening.